Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, stated what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what we call a podcast. This is an unplanned conversation. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California, uh, talking to you. My guest today is Janice Clark. She is the author of a debut novel called The Rathbones, which is the official August selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, for those of you out there who are unaware, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, it's a blog, a literary blog, a literary website. And we have a monthly book club. It's a terrific deal. It's only nine ninety nine a month, and you get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. And better yet, all book club authors appear on this program. So if you're interested uh, in joining the club, just head over to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. So uh, before we, you know, we get started with the main event, I thought I would tell you a story briefly uh, from my life. Uh, I celebrated my birthday this past week. I turned 38 on uh, August 1st. 
so that happened. I, I'm not huge on birthdays, meaning I don't invest them with a whole lot of meaning. I don't get worked up about it. Uh, it's a little bit annoying uh, to deal with just because I don't, I don't know how to accept birthday congratulations or like people calling me. I don't want to have the same conversation over and over again. Not that I get, you know, floods of calls, but you know what I'm saying. It's just sort of an, an annoying experience uh, from a phone perspective, at least. But not the, you know, not the biggest of deals, and it was a pleasant day overall. So uh, anyway, on my birthday, uh, I happened to be on my bicycle here in Los Angeles, which is a quasi-suicidal tendency for me, uh, you know, riding a bike around L.A., but I like to do it for some reason. I like to ride in cities. I don't care. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to dodge traffic. So uh, there I am on my bike, and I'm stopped at a red light, and a tourist van passes in front of me. And we, you know, we have these here in Los Angeles. Everywhere you go, there are any number of uh, companies offering tours of uh, Hollywood and so on. So this van... Uh, you know, like the light changes and this van begins to pass slowly in front of me and it's a van without a roof, if that makes sense. It's like a convertible almost. It's an open air experience filled with tourists. And, uh, you know, I, pres I, I assume that the driver was narrating from, you know, the driver's seat over some sort of intercom. So uh, there I am. Uh, at a complete stop on my bike on my birthday as this van passes in front of me and as it does I notice a young woman in the van uh, she's about 25 years old and she is looking at me with intensity like as if she recognizes me so there's this like brief moment of eye contact and then out of nowhere this girl uh, goes completely berserk <laughs> She starts screaming at me and uh, waving, and she even stands up in her seat, which then causes her fellow passengers to take notice, and some of them start to scream and wave. And it's, it's kind of a scene. It's a bit of a commotion. And, you know, it happens quickly. Like, this girl lost her shit. And then other people started to make noise, and then it was over suddenly because the tourist van uh, continued on, you know, uh, down the road as it picked up speed, uh, moving away from me. And, you know, so there I am on my bike, and uh, I'm having this moment on my birthday. I'm trying to process this, and uh, for a minute there, I was feeling pretty good. I was like, oh, my God, uh, this girl thought I was uh, someone. <laughs> Thought, she thought I was famous, this poor woman. And uh, this has never happened to me before. Someone's screaming at me from a vehicle. And uh, like, to have it happen on my birthday, it's like even better. And I, and I must say as well, I'm 99.9% .9 sure that it was me that she was screaming at because uh, there weren't any other pedestrians around. I, I, she was looking directly at me. And we weren't that far away from one another. So, uh, you know, that happened. And after it happened, the light changed. And I started pedaling. And I was feeling sort of inflated. I was feeling good about myself. 
I was feeling like, oh, this is my birthday. Like things are going my way today. Uh, but then as I continued to pedal, uh, the fe- the feeling, uh, soured quickly as it occurred to me that I had no idea who the girl thought I was. Because, you know, it could have been anyone and, and, uh, more to the point, she could have thought that I was someone horrible. <laughs> it could have been a very unflattering comparison for all I know. And, uh, you know, the, it might not be such a positive thing after all. And, uh, then as I continued to uh, ponder it, it occurred to me that I will never, ever know the true context of that exchange. It'll always be a mystery. And I, you know, I can only guess, which I find unnerving. Because, you know, I don't think I look enough like anyone to merit real confusion. Like, I'm nobody's doppelganger in Hollywood. And, you know, so it's, it's my thinking is that this woman has bad eyesight. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of funny to think of her, like, mistaking me for uh, Justin Bieber. Someone like that. I don't know. And, and you know what else? I was on a bike. <laughs> it's not like I was driving around in, in some sort of uh, lavish foreign sedan or, you know. Celebrities do not ride bicycles around Los Angeles. Almost nobody rides a bike around this town except for a few uh, crazy people. So that happened. On my birthday. That's my story. And uh, I'm going to choose to believe that I was mistaken for a dashing leading man. Or uh, perhaps a, a strangely magnetic minor character actor. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Janice Clark. Her debut novel, The Rathbones, has been generating uh, great critical acclaim. It is an auspicious debut, and the book is now available from Doubleday in hardcover. I'm very pleased to have her here on the program, and uh, let's get to it. This right here is Janice Clark and her novel, once again... 
is called the Rathbones. Well, I'm in Chicago. Um, I'm in a building that used to be the Bell and Howell camera factory, movie camera factory. And um, it's right between the elevated train tracks and the suburban tracks, so you will hear uh, the muted thunder of trains going by in the background. Or immediately I'm sitting at my desk, which is um, which is kind of this huge table with um, a lot of books, some mechanical birds, and my computer. Okay, so let's uh, for some reason, and I want to talk to you about uh, design. I guess that's where I want to start because yeah. this is an interesting coupling. You know, like not all uh, authors, not very many authors at all, have this kind of gift. And you designed the jacket for your book, did you not? Well, yeah, I did. The, the jacket was kind of an interesting story. This was not the first jacket. Um, there were some complicated issues with earlier versions. Um, and when it came time to do the galley version, there were no decisions made. So a very simple version of basically a white jacket with one of my illustrations from the interior was used. And lo and behold, people reacted really positively to that. So it, it sort of just headed that way without any direct planning. And then, of course, was um, you know, the in-house people at Doubleday did some further work on it and made it very beautiful. But it's um, it's gratifying to have my illustration on the cover. It's really nice. I was going to say, I mean, that's got to be pretty cool. And it really, you know, I think there are maybe a lot of authors uh, who dream of somehow being able to design their own book because it's such a personal act, you know, the writing of a of a novel and then... I don't know. That that just this just makes it sort of doubly so by having your artwork and your I should say you're a very gifted visual artist, which is uh, sort of an embarrassment of riches on the talent side. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, I I didn't know. I mean, going into it, of course, I didn't expect to design the cover because I knew you know I knew enough about publishing to know that it was still set up on the, along the lines of a division of a real strict division between the writing and editing end and the art direction end. So, um, you know, except with other, you know, there are imprints like McSweeney's and there are other, there's a lot of stuff happening out out there now that's very hybrid in form, which is really interesting. What do you mean? So what do you mean by that? Like hybrid in form? Well, like, oh, yeah, I, I just finished reading Marisha Pessel's new book. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that yet. It's called Night Film. Mm-mm, and no. it's, um, you know, without, without getting into plot points or whatever, it's, it, it's straightforward narrative, but it's punctuated by a lot of um, a lot of visuals. Um, there are uh, there's stock photos. There are you know fake newspaper articles, fake advertisements. Um, so that kind of um, addition of visual elements to the text itself is really interesting. I think I am seeing a little bit more of that. Yeah, there is a. Book, in, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there was a nonfiction. Uh... Like it won a big national award, either the Pulitzer or the National Book Critics Circle Award, and it was a memoir, and I'm t- and it was about a woman and her Is mother. Persepolis, maybe? No, it was about a woman and no. her, her mother's illness, and I'm I'm spacing it, but oh. anyway, it incorporated it incorporated visuals and was sort of a hybrid form as well. So it does happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my case, I was really going for the more you know, the, by by having little chapter header illustrations, I was really looking to sort of evoke more of a you know, perhaps a 19th century feel um, with the use of the illustrations on the inside. And that's, I think that's reflected also in the, in the title page, which I did not design, but. Um, oh, you did not design that. Cause I was like, holy cow. That's the title page, isn't it? Yeah. It's very, it's very Dickensian, I think. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's very opulent, but um, the little, the little guys I designed really, 
um, in, in homage to um, an edition of Moby Dick that was illustrated by Rockwell Kent back in, I think, 1930-ish. Um, he did these wonderful... Uh, they're not really woodcuts. I, I don't know what the, what the form is, but they look like woodcuts, and that's kind of what I had in mind with these little these strange little illustrations. Uh, they're used for chapter headers. What the, what the heck is a woodcut? Like you're actually like a car. I mean, I'd say, you yeah, know, you, I've heard it a million yeah. times. I probably use the term. Yeah, you but do. I, what is it? Yeah, I mean, it's like I mean, maybe in school you did you did linoleum block cuts. Does that ring a bell? You're probably too young to remember those. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's you're literally etching to the wood, and then you and then you basically dunk the wood block so that the raised edges are are inked, and that gets pressed into the paper. So it has a little bit of a um, it has a rough edge to it. Okay, that's right. Okay. And so, uh, where does all this come from? You know, like uh, you, you had, did you have an entire career in design before you started to write this book? Yeah, I've been a designer for, um, oh my God, I, I've lost track of how many years. I mean, I, basically when my son went off to college, you know, I had, I had written some back in the day, but I was also, you know, I divorced early. I was a single parent and I raised a son alone. And when he, when I drove him down to UT in Austin, when I drove back, I signed up for a creative writing class, and um, you know that was about ten years ago or so, and um, I just got completely enthralled with it. So um, I've had a, a parallel track of design and writing since then, and you know lately I've been able to spend about half my time on the writing, which is a real joy. And you mentioned Moby Dick earlier, which I think is like you know for, for a book that involves whaling is is going to be pointed to inevitably. Uh, yeah, and I mean, is it is there really a direct line? I mean, is that a book that you revere? Yeah, I mean, I I have to laugh because I you know the the book is in it, when the book becomes you know it goes out there into the world and you're forced to describe it in terms that are marketable, which is its own story. But it, the book is not intended as a mashup. But my description of it has been that, you know, it's sort of the Odyssey meets Moby Dick by way of the Adams family. <laughs> um, well, but you, pretty, yeah. well, you know, those um, kinds of, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of comparisons or mashups or whatever, they, they get uh, laughed at a lot, but you know, when you have to describe uh, a long form narrative quickly, I mean, yeah. you know, they come in handy. Yeah, it's the easy way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a little, I mean, I remember I'm laughing cause when I met my editor in New York, which was after the fact, um, and she took me next door into the publisher's office, and she said, "Well, you know, this is the author of the Rathbones." And he, you know, he looked at me and said, "Wow, that's, that was really good, twisted." <laughs> so it's a, it's a little, it's a little dark. It's a little dark. I mean, I think my favorite, um, com- my favorite mashup description was was one that was written for the millions, um, which I had nothing to do with. But there's some corollaries. It's, it's, um, and I'm going to look at a note here. Think Moby Dick, directed by David Lynch from a screenplay by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, with Charles Adams doing the set design and the Decembrists supplying the chanties. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought it was pretty great. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I would take that as a flattering uh, compliment, you know. Yeah. So okay, so you have, um, you, I mean, you grew up at you grew up near the water, correct? Because yeah, I grew up in a in a whaling village, actually. Not, I mean, that makes it sound like I, I actually grew up in a 1950s mid-century house, but. Um, I grew up in Mystic, Connecticut, which is home to a, a whaling museum. Um, and because I grew up there, I had zero interest in it. Um, you know, besides, whaling is really boring when you're a kid. So as an adult, I've lived away from Mystic most of my adult life. Um, and 
when I was a child, my dad was in the Navy, so he was always out to sea, and my mother was always waiting for him to come back. So there's a lot of that in the book. There's a lot of both that sort of double longing of, um, and Mystic is full of those old um, 18th and 19th century homes with the widow's walks on the top, which were built um, on hills so that women could, you know, stare out to sea waiting for their men to come home. So there, there's a lot of that in, in my in my memory as an adult. And so there's sort of the double longing of my mother waiting for my dad to come back and then of me as an adult, you know, living, for the most part, I've lived in a lot of places, but far from the sea and my longing for that. Um, so that's something that really infuses the book. And growing up there, you know, Moby Dick, my next-door neighbor was the high school English teacher who taught Moby Dick, so it's kind of inescapable. You just could not get away. And so, I mean, was it kind yeah. of a, like Mystic? I've never been there, but, um, you know, I know people from there, and I've seen pictures. It's a pretty idyllic little town, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful little village. Um, and the seaport itself, I mean, I actually visited it for the first time in about 20 years as I was researching the novel, and... Um, you know, in, in the book, uh, one of the key things about the book is that the, the mom wears a whalebone corset, and each for each year that her husband's missing, she removes another bone so that it gets tighter, <laughs> and, which is really, you know, creepy. Um, and when I was at the seaport visiting with my sister, there was a woman wandering around the seaport in a whalebone corset, dressed in period dress, and her waist was so small, I, I almost barfed, basically. Um, and she's a member of, apparently a member of a society of women that do that. Why? I don't know, but it's very strange. Yeah. Very strange. So, okay. So like as a child, were you literary? Um, oh yeah. I li- yeah, I lived with my head in a book the whole time as a kid. Okay. But I mean like yeah. ri- writing from a young age or was this something that dawned on you later? No, I did write from a, a young age. I, you know, when it came time for school, for school, you know, for choices for college, I had to choose between, you know, an academic path and an art path. And, you know, coming from a, I came from a working class family and, um, you know, my values were such that I thought I, you know, I'm going to be a graphic designer because I know I'll have a job, which ended up being really true. Um, so the writing kind of got set aside for a few decades and I would write intermittently. I, you know, I, I took a, a, a couple of classes at, uh, down at University of Chicago, you know, but that was during a period when I was still raising my son, and I and I was, um, you know, I just didn't have the time to devote to it until uh, until he was in college, and I had a little more time to myself. So, so yeah, I mean, I was always, I was always really interested in, it, but wasn't, you know, life didn't enable me to really sink into it until uh, much later. And I write hideously slowly, so yeah, me too. One by, do you really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Painful, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I like to believe it improves the quality, but that's just me trying to make myself feel better. No, no, you're absolutely right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's true. I mean, you, infu- you know, time gets infused into the work and you, can, you can't fake that. You know, however tortuous it is. It's like, I mean, it, this thing took me, well, it started as a short story. Um, between the short story and publications like about 10 years it was about seven years of seven years of writing and editing wow okay and do you feel like because there was such a long period of your life where you turned your attention away from anything literary and just focused on raising your child and uh working your graphic design job like do you feel like this book was incubating all that time or was it something that only really occurred to you once you 
kind of settled and sat down to to try to write? You know, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it was incubating, but not in a not in a form that burst forth fully formed. You know, it started as it literally started as a sentence, and then I would add to that sentence. I mean, this is excruciating, but you know, this writing class I took it. I basically write a paragraph a week <laughs> so, and, and just sort of luxuriate over the language to begin with. I mean, I re- it was really all about the language um, early on. I remember reading a, a quote by Donna Tartt, who herself writes in, insanely slowly. She, you know, she said she's perfectly happy to move a comma around for a week. You know, and that's, <laughs> that's kind of that's where I was at the time. Have you read, have you read The Secret History? Yeah, yeah, I love that book. Okay, yeah, like I, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. I thought that was a terrific. It's one of my favorites too. I, I didn't love her second one, so I can't wait for this third one to come out, which was, you know, that was ten years, right? Yeah, some writers. I mean, you know, like I think that's Jeffrey Eugenides is on like a book a decade uh, track. That's and, my other favorite. Yeah. I love him. So yeah. there, there's some writers who that's just their that's their cycle. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, that stuff. I mean. You know, I think I've also, I don't know if this is true so much anymore, but, you know, I used to think that for for a debut novelist, you know, who's, you're not debuting at, at 20-something, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's already been percolating in your life, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of that happens in the first book, and sometimes the sometimes I've seen the second book be kind of thin because of that. You know, thin not literally, but uh, in terms of... Um, having really mined all of the richness in the first work. And I mean, that's sort of what I feel like it, it, it really puts the onus on, on, on what I'm trying to write with the second book now, because it's, you know, I feel like it needs that same kind of, um, you know, depth and time. So well, I, I don't know how many more I've got in me, you know? Well, yeah. But I mean, that's an interesting point because, um, you know, some people, they debut, like you say, in their twenties and, uh, first novels are often uh, very personal, you know, thinly thinly yeah. veiled autobiography or whatever. And I think it's inevitable that if you're like 25 years old when you're when you publish a novel, um, you know, there's not going to be that much more typically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so like, and you know, so publishing later. Do you think that that maybe uh, since you're debuting later in life that you this might be an advantage that you might have more to mine for a second book, or, or are you saying the opposite that you? You put it all into the wrath bones. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I guess I'm saying I'm worried about it. <laughs> no, I think there's there's definitely a lot more there. Definitely, I just you know I'm not going to be cranking out a dozen books. I don't think, but that's I'm, that makes me perfectly happy. If I can do a few that a few that make me happy, that's that's more than enough. Yeah, well, yeah, and you know, quality over quantity. <laughs> So when uh, so when you were going through all these years um, where you weren't writing, what, did it um, did it bum you out? Like, were you stewing about you know, that? I, I have to say, I mean, the, in graphic design, I mean, in, in some aspects of my graphic design career, I've had I've had enough of a. It's come close enough to <clears throat> the art side of creativity as opposed to the commercial art side of creativity to keep me pretty happy. I mean, I've done a lot of, over the years, I've worked for a lot of arts organizations and designed some, um, a couple of of visual arts magazines, and and so, you know, had some ties to the art community, particularly in Chicago, that that felt really satisfying, and it wasn't until I really came back to the writing that I kind of got what I was missing. Um, What was missing? I lucked out... (laughs) 
Well, you know what? Um, in a huge way, I have to say that, you know, years of working for clients, um, that's the difference. I was my own client, and that was a little hard to get used to, to just making myself happy with what I was writing without any external force operating, and that was, was incredibly liberating. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, you, get, cause that's the, I mean, you just become accustomed to it, I imagine. You're so used to writing for... Um, the purposes of pleasing a client and suddenly th- that check is removed and it's, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it, was, it was kind of a rush. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it was all, was it also sort of stifling? Like, Oh my God, like where's somebody to tell me if this is good or not? Oh, interesting. No, I didn't have that. I mean, I guess partly cause I was in a, I, at the, at the time when I was, the writing was really getting going. I was in this class that was for me, it was terrific. I had a, um, the instructor was somebody I really connected with and it was a good group of writers and to have, you know, really strong positive feedback from that group was what, you know, really helped. And what was the writing class? It was just something like some sort of a university related thing or was it a workshop? Yeah, it started as a, it was a class. um, It was a university of Chicago sort of, what do you call that? Extended education or basically night class. Yeah. Um, not part of the curriculum proper, but an outside class. And then I liked that instructor so much that I took up a, a separate class outside of the university with him, with, with um, some of the same people, and, and just took several of those um, in a row with him over the course of a couple of years. What's his name? Let's give him a plug. So, students. Yeah, I'd love to. His name is Eric Lemay, okay. and he is now he he um, he bounced around for from. He got his PhD at Northwestern and then went to and taught freshman at Harvard and then he was at Columbia for a while, but now he's settled into um, Ohio University in Athens. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd love to give him a plug. He's a fantastic teacher. Wow, okay. And so from the beginning when you were writing you know, that first sentence or whatever the, the sentence was that occurred to you, and, and do you know what it is? I mean, is that is that sentence in the book and is it... Um, it's, it's not in the book, but I, I think I might have it in my head here. Let me think. Um, I would, let's see, I was born at night while the owls were out hunting with a birthmark shaped like a ship. Okay. It sort of just started from there. So when you started... Were you thinking from the beginning, I'm going to publish a novel with a major house in New York <laughs> and it's going to be in no. bookstores? No. This was just like, I no. want to do something for me now that my kid's in college. Just, well, it's just joy. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, it's just sheer joy um, in the writing itself. It's, some, it's something I kind of miss now that, you know, now that I am publishing with a big house. It's like I, I'm trying to make all of that all of the publishing world kind of go away so I can get my head back into that writing space um, with what I'm writing now. It's, you know, but I remember very clearly how, you know, how joyous it is to, to just fall in love with the language on the page. And and instead of imposing, imposing a set of rules on it, it really had to do with seeing what's on the page and what excites you on the page and just taking it from there. So, you know, while you're working, if you have a preconceived plan, if you're kind of an obsessive writer, which I tend to be, I tend to outline and make ridiculous lists, even though I know I shouldn't do that. And then when you actually are doing the writing, for me, if you, 
if you train yourself, you see something odd that sort of sprouts over to the side, and that's the thing that's more exciting, and you, and you learn how to follow that hmm. rather than, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's like, that's, to me, that's where the real joy is, is in just finding that fine line of your own excitement and continuing to travel down that and seeing what develops from that. Well, I mean, it's been, I think I've, I've talked about this before on this show with guests, and it's something that's never... It's never bad to remember that the, the 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 true fun part is doing the work, even though it can be. Yeah, I mean, the pain, you know, it's, it's horrifyingly painful at the same time. Right, it can be. I mean, but you know what? When you get to this point and the book is out, it's like I don't think that there are very many writers who don't look back on the actual creation of the thing with great nostalgia. Like you know what I'm saying? Like the actual day to day writing when the, when the writing was going well. Like like you just said, that's what you miss, and then you've you've got to go through a publicity cycle, and you've got to you know try to get the you know the book heard about um, so that people will read it. But then you go sit down to write the next thing, and you have to turn all that off as much as possible. Yeah. Yep. So okay, so let's talk about the road to publication because uh, it's different, you know, for everyone. And I'm curious to know, like, at what point this possibility started to become real for you and then you know how did you get an agent uh how did you find uh, a publisher how did that process go for you okay yeah i mean so it's kind of a long strange process i mean it, it actually started in grad school i went to i went to nyu for grad school and um while i was there one of my professors i was was excited by a couple things i'd written including the beginning of this which was like the first the short story that this came out of, I, I workshopped. Okay, so wait, chapter. when did you go to graduate school? Um, let's see, 2004 to 2006. Okay, so, and this was after your son yeah. went to college, or no? Yep, okay. yep. Okay, so you, went yeah. to, you moved to New York and went to graduate school. Yeah, yeah, you know, that was my midlife crisis, and you know, it, was, it was a Harley or a graduate school, so. <laughs> I, think you yeah. cho- I think you chose wisely. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so that, that, um, chapter, my professor sent on to, um, you know, a couple of people publishing in New York and so, so I, I drank a well one who, who pushed it to, oh dear, I'm going to forget the name, to an editor, um, who suggested I send it to Lauren Stein, who was then at, um, at FSG before sure. he moved over to Paris Review, and he he really liked what I had written, and he, so there's enough encouragement there. And, you know, it's still only like a chapter, basically the first chapter of the book. So um, during my second year, so I workshopped part of that in my first year there, and continued to work on it in the second year, and then moved back to Chicago and back to my design office, um, and continued to work on the book for another couple years about two years um and then i did, and then i started sending out queries to agents um and there were several interested and the first agent you know i don't know the protocol of this i don't know if i should talk about names but the first agent that i um sent it to i connected i really connected with and um the book was sent out to a small group of editors in new york and there was a lot of interest but a lot of there's a lot of work left to be done um and over the course of the next, you know, another year or two, I made a lot of revisions in the book, but 
it never reached a point where the agent that I was working with was comfortable with what I was doing, and we just severed the relationship. So at that point, I went back to um, and reconnected with a couple of the other agents I'd talked to at the time. And at that point, reconnected with uh, Molly Gleck, who's at Foundry Media, and she had she had moved to another agency and had tried to reach me, and I didn't have any contact information first. We kind of lost each other for a while, and then she and I reconnected and um, went into some, you know some pretty heavy revision at that point. Um, and then it went out to, um, oh, you know, about a dozen editors. And there was a, there was a preempt or an attempt at a preempt from the editor I ended up going with, which is Alison Callahan, Doubleday. And then I talked to, um, you know, several other editors that ended up, um, going with Alison. So it was a long, it was really a long process. Did you ever, Uh, did you ever despair? No, I have to say, I just. I, I mean, that was one of the really, for me, one of the great things about going to grad school at an advanced age, a relatively advanced age, me, you know, it was me and a bunch of 25-year-olds. I mean, I valued every instant of that experience, um, and uh, it, it was a really, it was a really warm community of writers. I made some great connections there, and I just, the support that I felt there, I, I just knew. Um, I just knew that it was worth pursuing and I just never, there was never a question of giving it up. Wow. Okay. So that's an interesting, uh, thing to talk about because that's an interesting experience to have. You're in, you're at NYU's MFA program, yeah. uh, you know, and you're a good bit older than most of your classmates. Yeah. Like almost twice as old, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> like describe the dynamic, you know, like you've gotten like, I mean, yeah, describe the dynamic, and then did you make friends, and what was the response, uh, you know, from them? What was the response from you? Well, you know, it's interesting, because I, I, I have to say I had a bit of a, um, I had a bit of a Pollyanna approach when I arrived there. It was something I had always wanted to live in New York. I mean, I was just, I felt like a teenager. I, I, I was, was, I was going to so- say, did you, like, <laughs> did you take up smoking? Like, what happened to you? <laughs> No, I, I didn't retake up smoking. I had quit, but you know, I you know, I did some I did some drinking and I did some you know reliving my lost youth. But um, it, I have to say, I mean, naturally there were a lot of people who I wouldn't form an easy connection with. But I didn't I didn't have any sort of because I didn't feel any kind of ageism. I I don't think I projected that, and so you know, there were a handful of of um, you know, fellow students who I just immediately connected with. And it was such an amazing thing to be able to just connect on the level of writing, um, you know, so that all the other considerations of, you know, age or sex or background just just kind of disappeared for me Sure. Um, with that handful. And that was, you know, that was um, a, huge, a hugely positive thing for me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was great. I feel like that. I, I feel. I, I feel like that should be a book. Like maybe you have a memoir there or something. You know. Like, well, you know, that's funny. It's funny because I, uh, yeah, I was even playing with some titles for that book, like you know, some, you know, fifty, fifty on twenty-five or something. I mean, <laughs> I seriously, yeah. I mean, there might be something there. Um, you know, and after the fact, I realized, you know, that, you know maybe it wasn't as, as uh, 
after the fact, it, it, some of the, the veil was lifted from that experience as far as, you know, I, writing programs are wonderful. They all have their um, their plus and minus sides, and I, I was seeing only the pluses when I was there. But, um, um, you know, after the fact, I I couldn't be happier than it that I had that experience and really, yeah. really did the trick. It really did the trick for me in jump-starting and, and uh, sustaining the, the work. Well, I mean, I think, like, what, what do they always, you know, social scientists always say that, like, you know, human beings need other people and we're social creatures and writing obviously works against that grain because it's work that's done in solitude. And so, you know, unless you're in, like, a regular writing group, uh, you go to school for it, and that's the only time you're really in com- in a community in close personal contact with other people who do this. And that's a huge relief. That's how it felt to me. Just right? To, I, yeah. I felt like I was sitting in a circle with other crazy people. That, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, it's true. I mean, I think you have to be at least a little bit crazy or the work's not going to be interesting, you know? Well, I think that the, in order to put yourself <laughs> through what you need to put yourself through to get a book done – you have to have, um, I, you know, I call it like jokingly the disease, but I mean, it's like that, the, the impulse to write has to be there and it has to be sort of undeniable because there, yeah. you know, like, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hoops to jump through and there's a lot of resistance and difficult moments and struggles and everything else. So, you know, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the experience and I'm, I'm also, um, I, I always, I'm always a little bit taken aback whenever I hear people tell these like horror stories about workshop and how nasty everything got, because I had the exact opposite experience. Like people were almost too nice. And like, I kind of, yeah, I kind of yeah. wish they would be nastier or like, you know, it kinda, <laughs> like, cause everyone was like reading stuff and be like, this is just like F Scott Fitzgerald. And I'd be like, Oh, please. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nowhere near that. Really? Day. Well, that's, you know, I mean, a balance would be nice. Right. I mean, I, 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 you know, I think I recognized because I had this, you know, this glow over the whole experience. I think I recognized after the fact that maybe some of the maybe some of the feedback wasn't quite as positive as I um, thought it was. But in general, um, yeah, I, I just feel like uh, there was there was a lot of honest criticism in addition to, you know, just the, the supporting. And, and, you, and you, were you were you impressed by the quality uh, of work that was being produced by your classmates? I mean, was like, was it a really talented group? Um, in, yeah, overall, yeah. I mean, uh, the people that I connected with, sort of on a on a writing level, there were a handful. But you know, it's not it's not a huge group. There, they were about a, uh, I guess a dozen people in each workshop. Um. And of those, I, you know, I think I, I appreciated all of their writing. I connected with probably three or four people in each of my workshops, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah. Well, then, like in my work, in my classes or whatever, there was always like a couple people where, I, and I don't mean to sound rude. I'm just being honest. Like there's some people where you're like, how in the F did you get into this? <laughs> like you can't even spell. Like you're in a master's level. Like writing Oh. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just like it's. <laughs> It sounds sort of crude to say, but I think like it's a common experience for people who go through MFA programs. Like, it's not a perfect process. Like, some people get in who really just uh, either don't care enough. Who shouldn't to... be? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, I hear you. So where did you live uh, when you were in New York? I'm picturing you down in like the Village. You know, like. Well, well, that would have been nice, but I know I lived out in Fort Greene. Okay, in Brooklyn. Yeah. 
but that's, yeah, which, but, I, which I love. Yeah. Okay, but that's still. I mean, that's still like hipstery, and like I can see you like, you know, living out your youth or whatever there. I really want yeah, this. No, I really want this to be a book, and then like possibly a movie. I'm seeing this entire thing in my head as we talk. <laughs> oh, my my experience. Well, I can. I, I'm starting to see it more clearly now that I'm talking to you. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So you go back. You finish the book. Um, you go out with it finally after all this revision work that you did with your agent uh, Molly. Uh, is yeah. That, is that correct? Yeah. Right, Molly Glick, yeah. And then, like, how long did the sales process take you? Like, were you um, waiting on pins and needles for a long time, or, or did it turn around relatively quickly? No, it was quickly? pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I, you know, I don't usually track track dates for this stuff, but um, I, I think it was literally, like, maybe two or three weeks of people reading and, you know, some of them getting back to Molly and saying they're really interested, and then... Um, and then it was, you know, a, a, literally a whole evening of of long phone calls with half a dozen editors. Um, Jeez, that sounds great. Then, oh my god, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it, it was such that I I got a really strong sense of each editor's approach, and I loved Allison's approach because she recognized in the book something that I really valued, which is that it's an adventure story, and, and that's part of, I mean, even though the book started in a darker place, and I think that I'm probably not unusual for a writer in that writing is my therapy, um, and for me, more valuable than therapy based on the results I've seen in, in, in other people in my life who've been through therapy and recognized they may know what they're going through, but maybe it hasn't really helped them solve their problems, you know, so at least I get a book out of my, my therapy, but... Um, so, oh, hang on one second, okay? Uh-huh. Okay. So, oh, I lost my train of thought there. So, we're well, talking about process, well, right? Well, with Allison, like, did you, uh, I'm curious to know, like, after you did all that editing with Molly, like, once the book sold to Doubleday... And Allison was your editor. Did did she then lead you through even like uh, you know even more significant revisions? What Allison did for me, which was so great, was she she stood further back from it's a very complicated. The book is complicated. There's a lot of um, sort of tortuous um, interweavings of these two families, such that I that I um, included in the book several family trees that show, um, you know, the sort of, um, the, the main characters changing perceptions of their family history because there's a lot of sort of very unsavory, uh, family secrets, uh, in the Rathbone. So, um, what Allison really helped me with most clearly was to, to, to solve some, um, some, uh, some questions about, plot and connection that were embarrassingly wrong, but because I was so close to the book, I couldn't stand back and see that. Things like... Uh, Thank God for Allison. Oh, I mean, fantastic. <laughs> I mean, just like just real, real clarity um, of vision about what was happening in the plot and issues, pro- problems I was having with um, amounts of time that had passed that were insufficient for certain things to have occurred. 
um, things like that. And then, so stru- structural, structural aspects that I clearly needed help with. And then also she, then she went a little further into it and looked at things like, um, you know, miss, missing pieces of things that tied up some of the, you know, the emotional threads in the book, um, you know, without saying anything about plot. I mean, I mean, there's a, there, she had me add something very close to the end of the book that, that really solidified a, a key relationship in the book. So she was able to help me on, on those two levels um, in a way that was just invaluable. But what I mostly loved was that she liked the sort of high adventure of um, what started as a very gothic novel with the main characters kind of trapped in this house um, and they burst out into the into the fresh air and onto the sea and um, you know go on this odyssey and um, and that was the part she liked best too. She had told me that um, I don't know how much she was exaggerating, but that she had you know on her desk she had three books about women like housekeepers longing for their men and she she was really glad to get something that was. Uh, you know, the woman isn't just sitting at home. She's out on the adventure. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked earlier about what a relief it is to be in like a, a workshop or to be in the company of other writers after working so long in solitude. But uh, yeah. it's, it's also such a great relief when you can find somebody, especially an editor at a big house who just bought your book, who uh, gets it, you know, who understands, yeah. who understands what you're going for. Like that's especially after spending years and years working on something like Talk about exhaling and being like, oh, thank God. Right. <laughs> did, you, did you have that experience too? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. you just want some – Just the relief, like, oh, my God, like, okay, somebody gets what I was going for here and like <laughs> and likes it, you know, and, and it's not like a, yeah, it's complete, huge. a complete mess. Um, <laughs> but it's also, it's also a relief when somebody gets it and likes it but also sees critical ways in which it can be improved that when pointed out to you are self-evident. And you go, oh, my God, thank you for finding that, <laughs> you know. Well, I don't know about you, but, I mean, when I, when I was working, at, you know, in the earlier stages of the book, I was extremely jealous of the process, and, and I really wasn't that interested in hearing other people. I was still sort of still being burst a little bit. Sure. Um, and it was only later in the process that I was willing to sort of open it up and say, oh, my God, I really need some help with this. Well, you that, but you know what? That's I think that's appropriate almost because you're, you're I, you know, personally speaking, if, if you're too if I'm too early in the creative process and I start to ask for um, really detailed response from people, it can confuse things and muddle things. But, you know, if I'm if I'm ready to show, then I'm ready to show. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. I think like every writer's different with that, but you shouldn't, you know, I think it can actually damage a, a, a piece of writing if you try to go out and get feedback too early. Um, I, I, yeah, I really agree with that. And, yep. and I should also say that like, I don't think like, you know, I'm not a person who needs like 50 different people to weigh in, you know, like two or three, is yeah. pl- two or three is plenty as long as they're trusted readers. And I feel like they're, they're ready to invest the time or whatever, you know, but I, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly for me. I, uh, three people, three people read the book. And the first one was my sister who's a librarian. And I was really afraid to, I was afraid to show it to her cause she's a horrible liar. And <laughs> I knew she wouldn't be able to, she wouldn't be able to hide it, but she, <laughs> she, <laughs> she liked it. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So your sister's a librarian. You're now a, yeah. a published novelist. So is there, I mean, is there a history of, 
uh, book people in your family? Was was one of your parents nursing a secret uh, literary longing or anything like that? I, well, I, I, not to my knowledge. I don't think I don't think so. But I mean, you know, my sister started working a library when she was fourteen, and I used to tag along with her after school. You know, do my homework at the library. So, but you know, my mom read to us every night when we were kids, and we we used to. You know, I used to walk to the local library every Saturday and just basically spend the spend the day there. So, you know, that'll do it. From an early age, we were just yeah, we were we were all about the library. Okay, well, and then you know, I want to circle back briefly and talk about whales uh, a bit more. Uh, yeah. Just by, I just want to ask you, like, how much experience do you have actually interfacing with actual whales? Like, when you were a kid growing up. I mean, and forgive me for not knowing better, but like, are there whales like visible off the coast of Mystic? Were you out in boats and seeing whales constantly? No, uh, uh, uh. I, I only really got into it. I mean, retroactively from or retrospectively, I started reading about whales once I started writing this book, you know, and became fascinated by them. I, I, what particularly in relationship to this book, the 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 history of whaling creates this kind of really a perfect compressed arc of about a hundred years from from the beginning of whaling up in Nantucket and New Bedford to the time that um, I really like this correlation. In 1859, the first uh, oil wells sprouted up on the prairies, and that was about the time um, you know, that was the, the beginning of the end for whaling. So it, it, the the course of the book is over that hundred year period. So it's um, um, the thing about whales is, you know, I, I joke about everybody loves a sperm whale, but um, every part of them was used, um, and after every part of the whale was used, including, you know, whale oil was used for king's coronations. Um, it was used in explosives in World War II. You know, ambergris, which is basically something out of the gut of a whale, was used in perfumes and wines. And then when all of the whale is gone, those sailors then took the bone, the irreducible bone, and then from this giant, violent life of the whale began this tiny, slow scribing into the bone to make scrimshaw. I was just fascinated by that. What is scrimshaw? Uh, scrimshaw is um, when whalers were at sea, and sometimes it's on shore, but for, you know, they, they wiled away the time by carving into the whale bone, um, and they would make whatever objects the, the bone would allow them to. So things like corset, the corset busts, the little pieces that fit into women's corsets, um, they would make, oh, I saw a cricket cage carved out of whalebone. But mostly it's what you would mostly see, uh, like in a, in a seaport museum, would be um, a sperm, like something like a sperm whale tooth with the, a portrait incised into it of the sailor's beloved or something like that. Okay, I gotcha. And so, um, have you seen a whale? I mean, I know you didn't see a ton of them. I have never ago. seen. I've never seen a live whale. Oh, you know. Okay, I've seen like you know. I think I want to say once or twice. I know for sure I saw one when I was in Hawaii years ago, and it was like a oh wow. like one of the few. I mean, you know, it's a it's a term that gets overused, but in this case, it was accurate. It was truly like a breathtaking nature experience. We were like, holy wow! And it's kind of freaky that there's these gigantic <laughs> creatures. You know, it's just it. it it's hard to fathom, and then you see it, and you know, uh, it's, it's very. Yeah, it's kind of it's undeniable, isn't it? I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's amazing to see. So, I was just curious, and and it sounds like uh, you had to do a fair amount of research. I mean, you're writing period, and um, there's a lot 
involved, as you said earlier. So you did you yeah. do significant research? You know, I did. I did kind of odd research because I and I, I had to like stop. I had to make myself stop because like I would have been perfectly happy doing this kind of research forever. But it, I, I didn't want to get. I didn't want it to, you know, to be in quotes a, a historical novel. I didn't want to be that concerned with accuracy, historical accuracies. But what I did research on was I spent I spent hours and hours um, looking at old um, sailors' journals and logbooks which, you know, a lot of those are duplicated really nicely online from Mystic Seaport. Um, and I spent a lot of time just, like, as a very visual person, basically staring at artworks from that period, that 19th century period that um, really informed the book that sort of seeped in. So, I mean, painters like, um, there's, a pa- there's a painter named Albert Pinkham Ryder who... Um, painted a, a, a small series of seascapes that are very spooky and almost gone now because he used faulty materials. Um, and a painter, uh, the painter Caspar David Friedrich was another big influence. He, he was a German romantic painter who painted uh, these sort of strange, attenuated figures standing, standing on the coast, always facing away from the viewer staring out to sea and they're, and it was, they're really infused with that sense of longing that I think is at the core of the book. Um, so the research tended to be more contemplative than factual. Does that make sense? Sure. And, and like, and with respect to this longing that you describe and, you know, and that I'm assuming you feel in yourself and like, you know, thematically, I mean, the, the book comes from you. Like, do you, do you look at this as a way of you kind of like longing for the experiences of your youth or that time that you spent in Mystic? Is that like the kernel of, uh, is that the rosebud? <laughs> you know what I think it is? I mean, yeah, well, it kind of is. It's like, it's, it's complicated, but it's, it's about, um, for me, it's about the, the, the distortions that happen with longing for something that's distant in time and space. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and for the characters in the book, there's, you know, there's this ten- strong tendency to romanticize that which is distant. You know, so the, the main character in the book, Mercy, the, the girl, you know, her father's been missing for many years at sea, and her, uh, and her brother, uh, which her mother denies exists, um, or whom her mother denies exists. And, you know, she, she spins these stories around the, the missing characters. And, you know, a lot of the book has to do with, you know, how she does or doesn't reconcile herself to the realities of these people. Um, so I think that really is, a, that, that sense of longing is at the core of it in that sense. So let's talk a little bit, uh, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about how you write. Uh, like in terms of your your ritual and oh yeah or, that's or always your, fun your regimen because it's again it's it's uh, somewhat different I guess uh, from writer to writer but you said earlier that you're pretty uh, organized and um, you know you're doing outlines and whatnot but like how do you work yeah yeah um, well I make. You know, I start. You know, I, I work on a computer. I like to think that I would want to just handwrite it, but I I like the fluidity of being on a computer because a lot of a lot of what I do is literally take 
chunks of narrative and set them next to other chunks of narrative and see how they resonate with each other, especially in the early stages. So in the early stages, like right now that I'm working on a new book and it's, it's long lists. Sometimes I'll, sometimes it's just, um, it's just individual sentences and then it's lists of words, um, references to painting and paintings and music. Um, and then when something jumps out at me, I pull that sentence out and, you know, set it next to another one. And hopefully that moves into, uh, moves into a, uh, a paragraph. But then also, I mean, that sounds very super touchy feely, but behind that I'm making, I'm making long notes, um, about background and story and possible directions for the story and structure and all that. Well, see, this sounds like it sounds really involved. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's kind of difficult. And then I reach a point where it reaches kind of critical mass, where it's like I can't stand to look at these notes anymore. <laughs> and then when I just then I just put them aside. Um, and then when I write, and then I'll write a couple of pages. And then I remember, you know, what writing is about. Yeah. Um, But you know what? This seems to to make sense. Like you have to get, you know, you're you're basically doing all that note taking and list making and outlining to get your bearings, you know, and it takes that. It takes that to get yourself grounded in a story. And then, you know, eventually when you're ready and you've worn yourself out, then you start to write. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's kind of that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's different from the first. I mean, the first book I thought, you know, I was... It was very much about, you know, the, you know, intuition was king, but now I'm, I, you know, it's a little, you know, it's moved into a more rational process. So it's striking that balance between, you know, planning and serendipity, really. Mm. And do you write every day? Yeah, I try to write every day for, you know, two or three hours. And that, you know, I, lose, I use the term writing kind of loosely. <laughs> I mean, some days I'm, I'm generating... Um, lots of words and some days I'm literally staring at I, I, you know, I put up I put up a lot of um, images while I'm working um, <laughs> you know, some days I'm not I'm not writing too many words but I'm you know I, I feel it you know percolating well, yeah but you know what I there is a great piece of advice that I got years ago when I was in college um, from actually from John Patrick Shanley I don't know if you're familiar with him that playwright uh, oh man I took yeah. a you know, Out. I did a little workshop with him and he was great. And he said that like, you know, it's a, it, it is, it is a day of work as long as you sat there. Like, even if you didn't get a word down. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, I buy that. I think that's true. As long as you, you know, as long as you truly sat there and tried, I mean, if you sat there and, yeah. you know, read the gossip, you know, column or whatever, then it's not. But, uh, you know, if you really, <laughs> if you really sat down with the intention to work and gave it your best effort and came up with zero words, um, you know, it's, yeah, how about you with a, with a three-year-old, do you get, you know, what's your, are you able to, to get some writing time in? Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it's, it's hard. Uh, you know, yeah. it's certainly harder than yeah. it used to be. And, um, you know, the problem too is like devoting time to it and then also trying to, uh, measure the time that you spend on it relative to what you think you're ultimately going to be able to get paid for it because you've got a mouth to feed. So it, yeah, I hear you. It, it changes things, you know, like I think that that's the, you know, when I was younger and it was just me, um, you know, I felt like I was gambling more with my own chips. And what I always tell people is that like once I, you know, now that I have a kid, I feel like I'm, when I sit down to write, sometimes I feel like I'm gambling with hers and that's not as good of a feeling, you know? So yeah, it's a matter, you know, it's just a matter of making sure I'm getting things done that I need to get done. And then in the, in the free time that I do have, then you sit down to work. 
And it's even gotten to the point, I should add, and I don't think I've said this yet on this show, but it's gotten to the point now where I have like a little writing app on my phone. And um, if I go for like a walk or, uh, you know, a hike or whatever, which is, you know, some of the only like solitary time I sometimes get, uh, I'll write, I'll write while I'm walking. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's great. It actually, you I mean, know, it's better than I thought it would be. I don't mind it as much. The only thing is that like, I'm sometimes running into people, but you know, they'll get over it. <laughs> well, I mean, you can take a tip from me, right? I mean, one of the wonderful things about writing is it's never too late to, you know, to engage with it or, to, or, you know, or to change how you engage with it and come back to it. You know, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and I, I truly believe, and I don't want to sound too precious when I say this, but like, I think if you're a writer, you're a writer and there's no turning it off. Like it, in some way it's always going to be there and hopefully there's an outlet for it, even if it's not the act of writing itself. And by that, I mean like, you know, for instance, with your graphic design work, like at least you had some creative outlet in which to like exercise that part of yourself while you waited for, right. your, while you waited for your moment. So, yeah, 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 no. So anyhow, um, this next book for you. Uh, you you know you've alluded to it. Like how far yeah. are, how far along are you? And can you give us any hints about what it's about? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for a while I was you know I was heeding that advice where you know you're at, it, it takes away the power of the book if you talk about it. But you know, I'm not, I think I'm far enough along that I don't feel superstitious about it. But it's I mean, in a broad sense, it's about um, it's about trees the way this book is about whales. Um, in particular, redwood trees, but but the the genesis of the book is um, starts from uh, actually started from another story, um, and the initial premise was about a family of lumberjacks who lives in the trees and never comes down, um, and that's the starting point. It's kind of based on uh, my mom's family. She was one of thirteen kids, one of whom was a lumberjack up in Canada. Um, but it's going to be, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a multi-stage book. It's going to have to do with, uh, it's going to start in Eastern Canada and move out to the California coast and, um, and move from, uh, early 20th century to late 21st century. That sounds tiring, even as I'm saying, I don't know how I'm going to get it done. <laughs> you poor thing. <laughs> Um, it was partly inspired by this wonderful book um, by Richard Preston called The Wild Trees, okay. which is about the, um, it's nonfiction, and it's about, um, it's about the extremely recent um, discovery of the tops of the redwood trees out in California, botanists, um, in the, I think, I think I read an article that the book came from in the New Yorker maybe 10 years ago, and, um, the discovery of a, a completely different and distinct forms of life up in these redwoods that are the oldest things on earth. And I got really interested in that. Um, and the book tracks the, the, the book by Richard Preston tracks the lives of these botanists. And, and uh, so it's still gelling, you know, I'm, I'm still in the, um, the notes and outline form, but uh, it's start, you know, starting to take shape. Wow. And so, and do you have a, a multi-book deal or the, this one will be going back out into the, into the uh, submission process? Um, I think it's, uh, it's, I forget what the legal term is. It's a right of first refusal. Uh, double, double, yeah, that's it. 
Doubleday gets to look at it first, and then they like it, take it. I was just talking to someone on this program, like just you know, a day or two ago, and we were laughing about that phrase. It should not be called right of first refusal. That's so. Uh, yeah, so negative, right? <laughs> it should be you have the right to accept this thing for God's sake. The writer's first embrace. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, listen, it's been uh, really wonderful uh, talking with you. I congratulate you on the Rathbones, and uh, I'm very happy that we got to feature this book in the TNB Book Club. And I wish you all the best uh, with this new one uh, on trees. Well, Brad, thanks so much. It was it was a real pleasure. Okay, you guys, that is the program. That is Janice Clark. Go get her novel. It's called The Rathbones, and it's available now from the good people at Doubleday. Also, don't forget to check out the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to visit killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the official app of this program, available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access the full archives and premium content all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, Otherwise, uh, I rode my bike again today. I did that. I went over to a coffee shop this morning to uh, do some writing. And uh, I want you to know that nobody screamed at me. Nobody mistook me for a famous person. And you know what? If you have any thoughts on who I look like, please be sure to uh, let me know. I would be curious. The email address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Please remember that Paul Bowles died of a heart attack and that Jane Bowles died of a stroke. That is it for now. Thank you uh, to Janice Clark. Thanks to the folks at Doubleday. And thanks to you everybody out there who is listening. I appreciate it. And I will be, uh, I will be back on Wednesday with another episode, another conversation with another book person. Okay. All right. I'm going to leave now. Uh, my work is done here and you are now on your own. I'm going to go ride my bike in the direction of the Pacific ocean. (laughs) 